from air conditioning to smartphones, from Roombas to Amazon Prime. Our culture wants you to be as comfortable as possible. And these comforts aren't necessarily bad. Uh, They can even be quite helpful. But we can get so used to them, they can become so much uh, a part of us, they can so shape our assumptions that, that we can become enslaved to comfort. Without realizing it, we expect comfort. We feel entitled to it. But it's not just our culture training us this way. I mean, we prefer comfort. Just think back to when you were the kid on the playground. Or think uh, of you being around other fellow co-workers. Uh, Don't you prefer to fit in with the crowd? I mean, it's more comfortable to be liked. Isn't it true that if, if many of us had our choice... We want the trophy, quite apart from the intense training. We want the crown, quite apart from the cross. We want to be comfortable. Some of our first questions are, will it be safe? Is the neighborhood dangerous? Are the people nice? How much of me will it require? Now, sometimes we ask those questions to seriously count the cost. But sometimes the desire to be comfortable keeps us from following Jesus and identifying with his sufferings. Sometimes we get so settled into this world that we stop living for the new one. We aren't the first Christians to be tempted this way. Some of the Christians in Hebrews had a similar struggle. There were some Jews who had become Christians, but now they're wavering in their commitment to Jesus. And part of that is due to their own passivity. The other part is due to persecution. Enemies are doing terrible things to keep them silent about Jesus. And so they begin to question, why bother with Jesus if it means so much suffering? Wouldn't our old ways in Judaism be easier? Didn't God speak in the old covenant as well? Let's return to Judaism. Perhaps, perhaps we could reduce our Christianity to what Judaism and Christianity hold in common. Maybe we could just blend in with the Jews a little bit more. And then, and then the Jews would stop persecuting us and, and Rome would get off our backs. To some extent, they preferred to stay comfortable over taking up their cross. And Hebrews exist to address that problem. To choose comfort in this life over the cross is to abandon the very benefits of Jesus' cross. Instead, Hebrews says, let us go out, let's go to Jesus outside the camp, bearing his reproach. This is the sacrifice that pleases God. I want to read it together, starting in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. 
He says, Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. In Hebrews, we encounter a consistent pattern. Magnify the greatness of Jesus and the new covenant over against the shadows of the old covenant. Magnify Jesus and the greatness of the new covenant over against the shadows of the new covenant. And then exhort the people in light of those greater new covenant realities. I want you to see that the same pattern appears here in verses 10 to 16. Uh, Luke, if you wouldn't mind putting up that first slide. I'm sorry I didn't get you a manuscript beforehand. Verses 10 to 12 explain the greatness of Jesus' sacrifice, along with the dangers of returning to the old covenant shadows. And then verses 13 to 16 show how that should impact our lives. You can see it there on the screen. Better sacrifice in 10 to 12, and then verses 13 to 16 give you the exhortations. Now this is how we're going to live. All right. So let's begin then with the better altar or sacrifice in Jesus. To understand verses 10 to 12, we need to jump back to verse 9. Verse 9 says, Don't be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which haven't benefited those devoted to them. Now, people speculate about what's meant here by foods and and people devoted to them, Uh, but a few weeks ago, we looked at chapter 9, verses 8 to 10. And those verses help clarify what's in view. He's referring to the old arrangements under the law in the, in the Old Testament. Okay, the law of Moses. And to devote yourself to foods in this context was to abandon Christ's sufficient work and return to the old regulations under the law that can't give you access to God that can't forgive your sins, and that can't cleanse your guilty conscience. So in context, 
We've got one group of people who are trying to strengthen people's hearts by returning to the old regulations under the law. They're trying to convince people that this is still the way to approach God and that there's even some kind of spiritual benefit in being devoted to the foods associated with those animal sacrifices. And Hebrews steps in to say, not so fast. Not so fast, Christians. Verse 10, he says, We, meaning we Christians, have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. All right, that's not language we're used to. But altar here simply means the place of sacrifice. Okay, one place of sacrifice is the altar in the old tent. Now that in the temple in, in Jerusalem, right? What he, what he calls here the tent. By contrast, the better place of sacrifice... The altar we have as believers is found in the death of Jesus. Okay? And his point is that anyone who, sue, anyone who chooses to serve the tent, anyone who chooses to serve the old system under the law, when the fulfillment of the law has come in Christ, they have no right to participate in the blessings of Jesus' sacrifice. Right? They're doing an about-face on the fulfillment of the law and returning it. That means they don't get the benefits of Jesus' sacrifice. So let's trace his argument a little further. In verse 11, he says, let me explain what I'm talking about. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now that's from Leviticus. Okay, under the old system, the priests would, would offer sacrifices for sin, and sometimes they could eat those sin offerings. By eating the sin offerings, Paul tells us they became participants in the altar. Okay, but there was one exception. According to Leviticus chapter 6, verse 30, it says, No sin offering shall be eaten from which any blood is brought into the tent of meeting to make atonement in the holy place. All right? Now, the key example for Hebrews is the Day of Atonement, which, comes in, uh, which is explained in Leviticus chapter 16. All right? In fact, the, the language in verse 11 shares... The same language is Leviticus chapter 16, verse 27, where it says, The bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. They weren't allowed to eat it, in other words. So the old order had sin offerings, but the priest couldn't partake of the most important one on the Day of Atonement. By contrast, Hebrews is saying that Jesus not only provides the better sacrifice, 
He invites us to share in its blessings, to participate in the altar. It's like John 6 says, he invites us to eat his flesh and drink his blood. His flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. How do you do that? How do you come and how do you eat and drink? Well, John also tells us you come to him and you believe in him. Right? When you come to Jesus as God's gift to the world for salvation, you will experience life with God. God himself will strengthen your heart with grace. Right? You're not going to be strengthened by returning these foods and rituals. God will strengthen your heart with grace when you come to Jesus. He will nourish your soul when you come to Jesus. He will give you help in time of need. And his point here is those who return to the old regulations, they are cutting themselves off from the blessings of Christ's sacrifice. And what is one of those blessings? Well, it's true purification to enter God's presence. You see, Leviticus chapter 16, verse 28, goes on to describe how even the priests could not re-enter the camp. So the guys that had to carry the, the carcass of the animal outside the camp, they couldn't come back in until they were clean. Okay? So we're talking about the tabernacle and the area around the courtyard. That's what he's calling the camp here. God, in the Old Testament, had designated that area as the clean area. Not like Lysol clean, but ceremonially clean. Okay? God's presence dwelled in in the camp. To be in God's presence, you had to be clean. Right? The camp was sacred territory. Outside the camp was designated unclean. Okay? Lepers dwelled there. Those who were defiled by dead things were there. Criminals were killed there. Uh, The nations who rejected God were there. Until you were designated clean by the word of God, you couldn't enter the camp. You couldn't enter God's presence. You needed purification. Now, that old system is doing two things. It's pointing backwards and it's pointing forwards. Okay? God was pointing backwards through it to illustrate all of humanity's story outside of the garden. Right? Our defilement with sin keeps us from God's presence. We need someone to purify us, to make us holy. But also through that system, God was pointing forward. Pointing forward to what he was going to accomplish for us in Jesus. Okay? Jesus, he says in verse 12, suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's unique. Why'd Jesus do it that way? That's not how the priests did it. Why'd Jesus do it this way? Outside the gate, outside the camp. The old priestly order could never bring the unclean 
into the camp. They couldn't bring the unclean into the holy places. The priests always had to leave them outside the camp. Unclean. They couldn't make the people clean. But Jesus did make his people clean. The Holy One suffered outside the gate. He didn't enter the old tent apart from us to make his sacrifice. He came to us. He came to the unclean. And he suffered and died to make the unclean people clean. To make the unholy people holy. Right? The righteous died for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. Nothing inside the camp, nothing inside the old holy places could ever do that. They were only pointers to the sacrifice Jesus made to bring us into the true holy places. To bring us into the presence of God. The unclean could never come to God. But he came to us. I mean, don't you see this in the Gospels too demonstrated? Like, the priest could never make the leper clean. He could only tell the leper when, when he was able to come back in. And Jesus shows up in the Gospels and touching the leper? Don't touch the leper, you're going to become unclean. But that's not what happens to Jesus. Jesus makes the leper clean. Right? He's like the ultimate priest. And Hebrews is fleshing this out further. He came to us to cleanse us and then bring us into the presence of God. Now, if that's true, and Hebrews is saying that it definitely is true. In fact, that's why he's bringing up the historical fact that you can find in the Gospels about him dying outside the gate. Okay, If that's true, if Jesus offered an atoning sacrifice that brought us into the true holy places, then he rendered the old holy places Null and void. Jesus' sacrifice was so sufficient in accomplishing our forgiveness, the sacrifices in the, whole, in the old holy places aren't necessary anymore. In fact, anybody who keeps devoting themselves to the old sacrifices, he's saying they don't please God. To spill more blood, when Jesus' blood did it once and for all, those sacrifices will not please God. To devote yourself to foods that don't mean a thing anymore, that have no saving significance, that doesn't please God. The only sacrifices that remain are the ones he mentions in verses 13 to 16. Okay, And they are not the kind of sacrifices that make atonement for sin. That work has been finished by Jesus on the cross. The sacrifices we bring are of the kind that grow out of the atonement that has, happened, that has been accomplished for us. And here's where Hebrews explains how the new covenant should impact us. How the new covenant should compel us to live. We know the truth about Jesus' sacrifice and its superiority 
how should we now live? What does it mean for the way we do life? And this is where he gives us three exhortations. Okay, number one. We must willingly bear the reproach of Christ. We must willingly bear the reproach of Christ. Listen to verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Now, we just learned that the old holy places are null and void. The place of fellowship with God isn't found within the confines of the old covenant. It's found in the person and work of Jesus. You don't access God by going into uh, a temple or any other place for that matter. The true meeting place with God is found in Jesus Christ. He makes people holy. He gives access to God. He turns unclean people into clean, sacred people. For whoever receives his sacrifice, Jesus' presence brings you into the true holy places. Do you see what he's saying? If you want to be holy, if you want true fellowship with God, don't, he's telling the people, don't go sacrifice at that tent over there. Don't start devoting yourselves to a bunch of empty rituals. Go to Jesus outside the camp. That's where you make your sacrifices now. And those sacrifices aren't you laying down an animal's life. The sacrifices are you laying down your own life. When Hebrews says, let's go to Jesus outside the camp, he's telling them not to return to the old regulations under the law. He's telling them not to blend in with Judaism anymore. Instead, they must actively and publicly identify with Jesus' sacrifice and no other. And for them to do that would mean persecution. Okay, that's why he adds, bearing the reproach he endured. Bearing the reproach he endured. Okay, when you hear reproach... Think others disparaging you. They publicly belittle you. They treat you as worthless. They, they turn you into a public disgrace and expose you to insults and abuse. I mean, just think of the reproach of Christ that we've seen in, in, in the book of, of Hebrews, right? He had to bear up under immense suffering the full brunt of temptation hounded him. With It says in chapter 5, with loud cries and tears, he prayed. Uh, he experienced hostility from sinners, that's chapter 12, and he endured a cross along with its shame. So, so bearing reproach here isn't comfortable, convenient, easy, or safe. It's a cross in the path of obedience and love. Right? Think of Stephen in Acts 7. Right? He's showing the Jews how the law and the temple pointed forward to Jesus. And what do they do? Well, they, in, they, in, they go get a bunch of other, their friends to lie about Stephen. 
and ruin his reputation. And by the end of it, they take him outside and stone him. Think also of what some of these Christians that we've been reading about in Hebrews endured. In chapter 10, verse 32, he says, Recall the former days when you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproaches. There's that word again. And afflictions, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. And that's what he's asking them to do again. Don't run away from that reproach. Don't fall prey to the comforts of blending in with Judaism or any other teaching that denies Christ's sacrifice. Take up your cross with Jesus outside the camp. And here's what that means for you and me. Don't blend in with the culture around you as a way to escape persecution. Don't try to syncretize Christianity with some other strange teaching as a way to stay comfortable and safe. Don't compromise on Christ as a way to fit in with the crowd. And that's a real temptation facing the church. To find security by identifying with the more recognized group. Or with the group in power. Or with the group making the most noise. Or with the group that agrees with me politically. And then compromise after compromise after compromise takes place until you can no longer tell the Christians apart from the world. No matter what side the reproach comes from, be willing to suffer reproach for the true gospel. Be willing to identify with Jesus in going outside the camp with all the disgrace and ridicule and mocking that will come along with it. Stick with the message of God's grace in the new covenant, even when that means others will hate you for it. The world hated Jesus too. The pagan Romans hated Jesus confronting their idolatry and immorality. You know who else hated Jesus? The religious right. When he confronted their hypocrisy and self-righteousness and lack of compassion. You see, when you stick with Jesus, you're going to get it from both sides. People are going to treat us the same. But let's stick with Jesus. That's a hard call on your life. But... It doesn't come without its reward. He says in verse 14, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, immediately upon reading this, we have the tendency to read Fort Worth, right? That's where we live. Here we have no lasting city in Fort Worth. That's not what he's saying exactly, though that might be a distant application. He's talking about Jerusalem. 
He's pointing his readers to Jerusalem. That gate over there, outside which Jesus died. He's saying, that city that you can see with your eyes isn't going to last. And it didn't last when the Romans sacked it in 70 AD. His point, though, is not to give themselves living for that Jerusalem. The Jerusalem below. Rather, live for the Jerusalem above, he's saying. Live for the new Jerusalem that will one day come down from heaven to earth. Live for the city whose designer and builder is God. That's your reward. The blessings and the riches of that city will be so worth every sacrifice you will make. So don't get too settled into this life. Don't grow too comfortable here. I appreciated Wes's exhortation at the members meeting last, last Sunday. Reminding us from 1 Peter that we are sojourners and exiles on the earth. Our true home is in the new Jerusalem. And that should affect what we value. That should affect what, what, uh, what we give ourselves to should affect what we speak about most passionately about where we lay up our treasures. Number two, he says, openly praise the name of Christ. Openly praise the name of Christ. That's another sacrifice that pleases God outside the camp. Uh, Verse 15 Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Okay, notice first that any true worship of God must come through Jesus. Through him, let us continually offer. So Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. There is no other way to approach God, no other way to... To please God, besides through Jesus. See also that he clarifies what he means by sacrifice of praise. He says that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Now the word behind our English acknowledge has more to do with confessing Jesus publicly. Not just kind of like acknowledging him there on your own, but actually publicly and openly acknowledging him confessing him. We see this in in the ministry of John the Baptist when he's openly announcing the Christ in John chapter 1. And then later we see it in John chapter 9. You remember when the the blind man is healed and the, 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 the leaders, the religious leaders bring in the parents to testify and they kind of throw their son under the bus Yeah, and it says this in the text. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ. That's the same word that you find here in Hebrews, acknowledge. If anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Okay, how do do you think he's talking about confessing Jesus? Openly, right? So we're dealing here with open confession, publicly acknowledging Jesus' lordship. And then also notice that it's, it's not limited to a religious event 
or to the car ride on the way to work, right? or to a season of life that's easier than others, open praise should happen, he says, continually. Let us continually offer up. So in private, in public, Sunday through Saturday, in plenty and in want, in all circumstances, we must openly praise the name of Jesus. I, I love our Sunday gathered here. I, I love acknowledging the Lord's name with you uh, in song and in prayer and encouragements afterwards. Um, but this is not where we spend the bulk of our life, is it? Sunday gathered is meant to prepare us for where we do spend the bulk of our lives with other people. Other people outside this fellowship at family events, at school, at work, at neighborhood parties, at city council meeting, at the park, at the gym, at the pregnancy help center, in lines at the grocery store, reading to your kids. Right? They could be Christians, they could be non-Christians. I've been doing the grocery shopping right now. Tuesday mornings, I go to Sprouts. I see the same people working, the same cashiers. As, as you build relationships, you learn their names, you learn about them, you, you learn what they love, sometimes what they hate. You learn when a family member dies or when a customer mistreated them. One lady who works there is a Christian and will often share something that we've been reading in the Word recently. And, and, uh, and there is no private conversation uh, with her. When she talks about Jesus, the whole store hears about Jesus. She has no problem opening, openly praising the name of Jesus. Just before Christmas, though, another cashier had shared with me how the raise she expected wouldn't come through. It wasn't going to come through. And it brought a lot of grief for her. And this provided an opportunity for me and this other sister, one who loves openly praising the name of Jesus, provided us an opportunity to pray for this cashier cashier, and to speak to her about the Lord. Both of us were able to openly acknowledge that God is there and that he cares for her and that he will hear when she cries to him. And, and it's opened a door. The Lord actually answered this prayer, gave her the raise that she didn't expect. Um, and that has opened a door for further ministry for this other lady in the store to, to share Jesus with her. So... Um, praise God for that. Each of our circumstances are different. Each of your contexts are different. The people you interact with during the week are different. But our responsibility is always the same. Openly praise the name of Christ. When the opportunities come, speak boldly. Rejoice in his good graces to you. Even, even when they imprison you, right? We, we have examples in scripture and in church history of saints praising the name of Jesus in the midst of their suffering. So make him known to others continually. This is another sacrifice we bring. And then lastly, number three, generously serve others to image Christ. Generously serve others to image Christ. This is another sacrifice pleasing to God outside the camp. Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
That reaches back to Jesus' teaching, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus not only prioritized doing good, uh, but he taught his disciples to follow in his footsteps. And one of the way, on one occasion, he tells his disciples this in Luke chapter 6, verse 27. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. What sorts of good does he have in mind? Well, he continues, to one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I mean, can you, ima- can you imagine? These people have had their property plundered already for identifying with other prisoners. He's telling them to, come on, don't, don't give in to the Jew, Jew, Jews now. Keep following Jesus and do good. And they're going, ha, huh, this is the call, Right? To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other off. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic on. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great in heaven. And you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So according to Jesus, doing good goes beyond good morals expressed privately in your home. It goes beyond what's normally expected by pagans in the world in any given situation. 1 Peter 2.15 makes a similar point, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Okay, Meaning, your commitment to the good of others should be so obvious in the way you care for them that even non-Christians would have no grounds to speak against you. We are to be the sort of people... That when others attack us, everyone else is looking around at the attackers and going, Are you nuts? These are like the most generous people I know. They're like the most caring people I know. That's what it's supposed to be like. I'm not sure the world can say that about the church right now and the way it's responded to this election and everything else. It ought not to be. Our good deeds and kindness and generosity to others ought to be the things putting them silent, silencing them. That wasn't in the manuscript. That just came out. But it needs to be said. Doing good. Uh, in Mark 14, verse 7, it refers to caring for the poor. Hebrews itself has given us a few examples, uh, like serving the saints in chapter 6, verse 10. Showing hospitality, chapter 13, verse 2. Serving the persecuted church, chapter 13, verse 3. The rest of verse 16 here speaks to using our material possessions to serve others in need. He says, share what you have. 
So this kind of sharing marked the church from the very, very beginning. Acts chapter 2, verse 44. All who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In 1 Timothy 6, 17, Paul encourages the rich like this. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to, here it is again, do good. And to be rich in good works. And to be generous and ready to share. So you see these things paired up quite often in scripture. Doing good, sharing what you have. We're dealing here with with caring for others in visible, material ways. And they're, they're characterized by a kind of generosity that can only be explained by the presence and power of Jesus in somebody's life. They can only be explained by their hope in the city that is to come. Right? To serve others. We we can let go of our things more easily because of the treasure that we know awaits us in the new Jerusalem. Maybe you know of a need that you can meet this week or even today. Maybe you're aware of a single mom that needs help watching kids. Maybe you can use your home to host care group or invite families from the neighborhood over for a Saturday breakfast. Maybe there's someone at higher risk with COVID and and they need help with groceries. Maybe you've experienced mistreatment from an enemy of the gospel at work this week and your next step is going to be to serve them. It's going, to bring, it's going to be to bring them the cup of cold water, right? It's going to be you doing them good this week and respecting them. Maybe you just need to do a better job of knowing people's needs, period. So that you can then meet them. Whatever it looks like, let us generously serve others to image Christ. May our light so shine before others that people see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. I can just tell you a story one way that's played out in my life one time. I was in seminary in Greek and I cheated on an exam by looking at my neighbor's work on one problem. I had actually written down my answer and glanced at his paper and knew mine was wrong, so I changed it. And so I told my professor about it. uh, And I, well, I told him I wanted to come talk to him about it. And so he said, well, meet me at my house. And... uh, So I went over there one evening, told him what I had done, and he asked lots of questions. And that was the only time I had done that, and there's other ways that this has manifested itself in my life, and uh, really cared for me. Um, Anyway, he said, well, if this is the only time, then 
uh, I forgive you. I think we can move forward. Um, you know, and uh, he said, by the way, uh, my wife has prepared dinner and f for you and set me down to a feast. I mean, an immense feast. And I was like, how Christ-like of this man. It wasn't just, I forgive you, but come sit down at the feast with me. Like, that's the kind of generosity that we ought to be showing towards one another and with the world, right? Over and above, like the only thing I could say that day was Jesus is in this man. Jesus does that kind of stuff right there. Are these the sacrifices that you bring to the Lord? How are you willingly bearing the reproach of Christ? How are you openly praising the name of Christ? And how are you generously serving others to image Christ? These are the sacrifices that please God. These are the sacrifices that grow, uh, that grow from our knowledge of Jesus' once-for-all sacrifice for us. So let's give ourselves to them faithfully. They will surely pull us away from numerous comforts in this life. Living this way will not be convenient or easy. We have to remember what Hebrews has also taught us already. Jesus is our help. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the one who strengthens our heart with grace. If he died to take care of your biggest problem and bring you to God, oh, he's going to be there for you, I promise. He will now, in his resurrection life, help you until we all someday meet in the New Jerusalem. Maybe next year. Let us go to him outside the camp. Bearing the reproach of Christ. For here we have no lasting city. But we seek the city that is to come. Let's pray.